another edition of Expanding Minds. psychedelic mysticism, psychedelic religion, and I, I dove back into the literature and once again was just blown away by the amount of stuff that's going on, the amount of books, papers, conferences. Uh, you know, psychedelics have, have always been a very interdisciplinary field, and now all of these disciplines are, are, are char supercharged with uh, discussions from clinical psychology to history to anthropology uh, political science. So it's really a dizzying field, and it's the kind of thing that uh, if that was the only thing I was interested in, I'd still be uh, overwhelmed. And one way to uh, deal with this overwhelm, at least one way that I deal with the overwhelm, is to uh, cultivate friendships with people who have a lot to say, uh, who, uh, who can act both as uh, filters and guides through uh, this uh, crazy uh, jungle of discourse that's surrounding the ongoing complexity and mystery of uh, how do we engage psychedelic plants and medicines, uh, whether they're medi whether we should even think about them as medicines. I mean, the, the questions just go on and on and on. Um, and so I, I'm very happy uh, today to be speaking with Bia Labache, who's somebody who I've, I've wa I wanted to meet for a very long time because she's um, definitely one of the more, uh, uh, how do I say, sort of engaging movers and shakers in the psychedelic world, which is, features a lot of uh, uh, old white guys. And uh, she's not an old white guy. Uh, she's a bit of a firecracker and uh, got her degree, social anthropology uh, from Brazil and is currently in the United States. She's probably, uh, in, in addition to uh, tons of uh, books that she's written, edited, uh, lots and lots of, uh, of chapters in, in edited collections. Uh, she's also the main editor at Shakruna. Uh, it's shakruna.net, I believe, right? And uh, yeah. that, which is a great site. It's my favorite site online for um, uh, smart, well-informed, accessible writing about psychedelic plants. It doesn't have the, the kookery of uh, Reality Sandwich. It features a lot of academics, but academics writing intentionally for popular audiences. So it's a very valuable uh, source online for uh, uh, psychedelic issues and psychedelic news. Um, and then Bia also uh, has been curating some of the uh, tracks at the large MAPS conferences. And uh, last year, I found myself almost exclusively in the plant medicine track when I attended uh, the big MAPS conference in Oakland, uh, simply because it was the most interesting material uh, in the sense that while new sciences about uh, neurology and clinical research were part of the discourse, at the same time there were also a great deal of attention to indigenous worldviews, to anthropological problems, uh, to uh, pol uh, political problems uh, related to indigeneity, to the nature of these plants, questions of animism sitting alongside questions of uh, global appropriation, but in a complicated way that wasn't simply, um, you know, a, reduced to a kind of politically correct position. It was, it was a very rich range of, of papers, uh, particularly around peyote, uh, which we'll be talking about a little bit. And uh, a lot of those papers will be coming out in a book, or maybe the book's already out, called Plant Medicines, Healing, and Psychedelic Science, which was drawn from uh, the plant medicine track there, and, and we'll hopefully uh, touch on some of that stuff today. Uh, so Bia, welcome to Expanding Mind. 
Hey, thank you. Thanks for all the, those nice words, though, you know, I already feel scared because you're so articulate and there's lots of sophisticated words in your vocabulary. So while I feel very blessed with your opening words, I also feel a little bit threatened <laughs> that I have to be as smart as you. No, uh, no, but no. But, but you're so accomplished. I, I feel like it, when I saw the list of all your uh, papers and books, I just I felt like a tiny little mole because I've you know, I've cranked out some things over my more years on the planet than you. So it's, it's equally uh, admiration and, and, and envy here. One thing I didn't mention, though, that I would like to start out talking about is this wonderful looking conference you uh, had organized over the last few years. It just took place in February in the state of Jalisco in Mexico uh, on sacred plants of the Americas. And uh, the the you know what I, the, the few things I've read about the conference made it seem you know very exciting. A lot of uh, indigenous presenters, uh, questions of uh, plant politics, of uh, appropriation from the West, and and it was all held in in Spanish. So even if I had gone, I would not have been able to read very much of it. So I'm going to have to ask you tell me more about what went down at Sacred Plants of America. It's like what you were intending to do. Uh, with in a way, it was kind of like a way for you to to bring the the Bia Labachi concerns into the world of psychedelic conferences. There's so many psychedelic conferences now, and Sacred Plants of America's looked really special to me, uh, as far as I could judge. So, what was your uh, hope with the conference, and what actually uh, went down? Oh yeah, thanks for asking that. That's you know actually the topic that is more dear to my heart right now. Uh, because it was really, really amazing, and we're very happy and feeling very blessed and very lucky. It 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 didn't go just well. It went excellent. Uh, we 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 were very idealistic since the beginning, and you know it started with writing a grant proposal for Open Society Foundation, and that process uh, and back and forth took one and a half year. And then it took us another year to organize the conference. Basically, uh, my assistant and I, Horacio Guevara and I, and then we had um, later down the road the collaboration of a group that we co-founded called Collective Drugs, Politics, and Culture. So some other uh, great colleagues all doing voluntary work. And the conference aimed to, to make a dialogue between things that I think that are normally separated and don't... Uh, don't you know dialogue <laughs> so one on the one hand the traditional use of plant medicines and indigenous people ritual religion shamanism on the other hand uh, drug policy so um, you know the movement of legalization criticism of uh, the paradigm of anti of prohibitionism and all proposals for other models of regulation and on the third um, level, the, the discussions around the, psych the therapeutic potentials of psychedelic uh, plant medicines or other substances that are not plant medicine, maybe plant medicine based or somehow inspired in the knowledge of plant medicines. So these universes, they normally don't dialogue very much. Uh, for the, the folks in, in drug policy normally don't care a lot about what indigenous people do and, and their problems and their issues. And scientists in a more mainstream like clinical settings frequently don't know anything about the traditional 
use of drugs, and indigenous people are often kept off the loop of all of this discussion. So we try to weave all of this together. Um, and we also had a very idealistic point of view that education should be free and accessible to all. And I was feeling particularly uh, irritated and, and annoyed uh, with the progressive commercialization and bureaucratization of the field of psychedelic science and uh, plant medicines. As they become more and more mainstream, more and more players that are from outside this universe are looking into this and more people you know, start to look at these topics as job opportunities and stuff, which is okay in certain levels. But we just found things are getting too much, you know, commercialized and, and uh, you know, sometimes dealt without that, that those roots or those tenderness or those, you know, feelings that inspired a lot of us. So we wanted to make a point and we make the conference entirely free. So that was awesome. The other point that was awesome was that we're very tired of tokenization of indigenous people and you know putting one here or one there to say, oh, we care about indigenous people. And of course, that it's still like, you know, Western or outsider or hegemonic models that uh, it's a conference and stuff, but we really try to, to make a different format and, and give indigenous people more space. So we had two indigenous people in the scientific committee of the conference and we considered all the indigenous people as our keynote speakers as a kind of form of decolonization of you know hierarchies and knowledge so if you were a phd you would have 20 minutes to present if you were indigenous you had at least 40 or more uh, so that was nice it's also you know harder to get this um especially the 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 elder guys to tell them you know you have 10 minutes or 15 to present <laughs> because indigenous meetings frequently go on from dawn to dawn and uh, or dawn to dust uh, forgot the the word the correct word there from the sunrise to the sun going down and everybody speaks and the discussions go on and on forever um, so we try to you know <laughs> to speculate on how we could make a format that was more friendly. In the end, it was still a more a, a conference format, but we were more open to, to giving them more space and being a little bit more relaxed about certain protocols. And, you know, there were some artistic expressions and poetry and singing and playing instruments. Uh, and also we, we didn't like get indigenous people out of the blue just just to have them there put them all in a bus and and, and say hey here attend but these connections were were made very carefully and they were weaved you know with time and and tenderness and attention and basically because we don't know everything we are modest to recognize that so we get people that actually know and people that are actually solid uh, and have deep connections in communities to be the mediators between the conference and the communities. So I worked closely with a number of different anthropologists and colleagues that have deep ties of decades into indigenous communities. So every, every of our guests was, you know, really connected and had real attention and had somebody that talked to them and we put their bios and 
uh, you know, their abstracts. We discussed with them what they were going to talk about. And we uh, asked their opinions on what they thought about the conference. So we had a very mind-blowing, for example, roundtable of the Wiradica or Wicholas that was uh, led by my dear friend and colleague, Diana Negrin. Her father was a pioneer in the 70s uh, in the Sierras Wicholas in, in Mexico. And they talked, you know, on the perspectives of, of peyote conservation and land and autonomy issues um, from their point of view. But as you see, I like to talk and I can go on and on. Yeah, so yeah well, let's, no, it's fun. I, I, was, I was enjoying just sort of getting a picture of this wonderful conference and, and wishing that I, that I had been there. Uh, but I, I, let's stop and talk about the peyote thing. I mean, again, um, the, the plant medicine track at, uh, last year at MAPS was, was very, very interesting because so many issues are raised, you know, issues of cultivation versus, you know, you know appearing in nature, issues of uh, land uh, rights, uh, control, uh, tensions between, uh, you know, traditional users and new users. I mean, there's so many interesting things that are, that are overlapped there. So I would just like to hear a little bit more about uh, what, what came up, because if, as, if I remember correctly, the, the conference took place on Wijerica uh, land as well. So there was some kind of special relationship there between um, even where the conference was, sit, was situated uh, and, and that particular kind of cosmology. So what are, what are the main things that are happening? I know there's a lot of issues about land rights and there's issues about the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the potential uh, destruction of natural sources for uh, peyote with, due, due to the demand. Um, so when the, when the Wijerica were presenting their kind of perspective, uh, what were the main things they were, they were emphasizing? Okay, just a little remark. It's not that it was held in Wiradica territory, but it, the conference was in Lake Chapala. That is the largest lake of Mexico. And there is a spot in the Lake Chapala that is called Isla de los Alacranes that for the Wichol has another name. And that is a considered a sacred point um, in, in, in their cosmology. Uh, so just a clarification, like they don't necessarily live in the sacred lands. For example, Viricuta, that is, you know, the heart of peyote territory, um, is a place that they migrate to. Like they migrate to this ones to do peregrinations and offerings. And uh, that was also interesting because the, you know, the elder Mar Marakame, he, he told us in that after the first day, there were a lot of controversies and dispute that he, he was feeling upset and he was, you know, bothered that the land felt bothered and it was too much talk and too much uh, anger and disagreement and that we needed to do an offering. Um, and he called some of the abuelos, the elders that were present, and they went doing an offering in this island uh, as a kind of part of the conference, which I think really... Uh, in the end, I saw myself, you know, as an outsider looking at this, again, alternative, these other ways of meaning and I, asking myself, okay, you're an anthropologist, what do you think about this and do, be, do you believe in this? And uh, it was an intense moment for me. We woke up very early and then we took a little boat. It was also very beautiful. And I think that that offering definitely played a role because the closing of the conference was so beautiful and so magical with 
you know, I can talk more about that if you want. But coming back to your question, what happened in, in, in the conference was that um, the, the Canadian uh, Real Majestic, first Real Majestic, um, I don't quite know the correct name now, can't remember, but the mining, the main mining company that is settled in Virikuta, they send representatives to the conference. So the conference ended up acting like a sponge um, to conflicts that were happening in the region because this has been an ongoing battle. And uh, I don't think we have any time to, to go in details here because there's also a lot of topics, but in one word, uh, this, this, the, the authorization to have mining concessions uh, was given by the government. There were huge protests, uh, huge alliances between like uh, more hippies or new age or conservationists or ecologists or intellectuals and indigenous people against this concessions. And then, you know, through different le legal strategies, they this company has managed to be settled there again. And then some Wiradika have put an amparo, which is like a protest trying to stop these concessions. And so the mining went there. Uh, and, you know, there's also internal divisions among uh, the Wiradikas themselves. So there's one entity in particular that uh, is composed by indigenous people that is in favor of the mining and they were all you know also dressed in their traditional um you know clothing and some campesinos some rural people the hereditarios that are local landowners that are also on the side of the mining so in many ways it was like you were watching some kind of film without you know subtitles on a foreign language because it was hard to decipher the discourses and they had the, they, they, they took the mic every round after every person spoke. They came there to speak and to create troubles and to like uh, challenge, you know, the conference and the, and the presenters and the organizers and the whole narrative. And the kind of narrative they, they put is like uh, the foreigners, the, you know, the hippies, the new age, the outsiders, the university people, they, they are saqueadores del peyote. They are people that steal peyote from the desert because they are traffic dealers, because they are making a profit selling peyote. Mm. And their interest in protecting the land is a self-interest of obscure reasons because they are interested in making a profit and, uh, uh, you know, having their own self-personal uh, benefits and they create uh, defamation and they spread lies um, about the mining which gives work to the people which is healthy which is providing it, it's a little bit like there's a parallel going on in the Amazon uh, where the ruralists do you say this word mm -hmm. uh, uh, that own land um, you know they they, they have started an investigation against the Brazilian Anthropological Association and FUNAI, that is the Indigenous Representative Association, claiming completely like absurd weird things like, you know, these, these anthropologists have obscure interests in the Amazon because they are funded by, uh, 
European countries, such as Norway, the government gives a great support the, to, to the Amazon uh, protection, to environmentalist entities. So the discourse of the ruralists is to say, you know, these people, they are selling the Amazon. They don't have, uh, we have to protect the sovereignty of our land and they have foreign money to protect, to, to try to sell this land uh, to, to, to Norway. So it's like people like me or, you know, my colleagues, we would be the ones with obscure interests in protecting the desert because we have some kind of, you know, we're obscure interests. And it was, it was just interesting because, I mean, they, they, they defended points of view that seem very authentic. Like, you know, we're against legalization, we're in favor of peyote, we're against the invasion by people that are stealing peyote. But in fact, you know, it's it's the other way around. So I had I had a little moment there. I interrupted the discourse and I said, you know, I am one of those foreigners. If you have a problem, you can ask me directly uh, what what is my agenda and what are my intentions, and I'm happy to share. But but you know that the presence of them didn't scare us away and didn't make us feel bad. On the contrary, we felt good. We felt that our conference was making some impact. And they were there. They were there just the first day, and then the other days they didn't show up. So I thought that was kind of nice too. You yeah. know, they they tried to take it over, but it didn't work, and yeah. they left. Well, I like this question though about about your agenda, and that I'll, I'll I'll phrase it this way: is that you know you're you're at a very interesting intersection. You're you know you're a, a, a pedigreed social scientist with uh, your own career interests. Uh, you produced a lot of material. You're you're very um, visible uh, in the in the exploding world of uh, you know psychedelic science and discourse and, and politics. Um, and at the same time, you have your own personal commitments and investments. What brought you to this work in the first place? Uh, you know, you talked earlier about the kind of bummer of the bureaucratization uh, and the you know, what looks on the, on the horizon, on the near horizon to be, you know, new forms of like capitalist interest in these medicines and uh, private companies and the way in which that's changing the whole scene, just the whole way that people think about these things, talk about them. And while some of that is necessary as part of the decriminalization process and part of the broader healing discourse, obviously it's also kind of a bummer. And so I also sense that that's part of what you're interested in is to figure out how to how to acknowledge this new world, but also to keep some of that commitment or some of those investments in uh, other ways of, of being with these things that are perhaps less bureaucratized. So that's all a long setup to say, how, how would you describe your, your agenda as someone who's devoted your life to, and a lot of work to working in multiple levels on multiple planes with this material and with these uh, ideas and discourses? Wow. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to ask a rain check on that. Let me think how I'm going <laughs> to answer Sorry. that. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's, um, I, I guess I would, I would recap on this. Uh, I had a conversation with Alke. She is one of the indigenous women that was, she's uh, with all and she was in the conference and she had a spectacular closing statement in her you know in her in the end we made in the conference we made 
each person, each representative, they spoke in their own language. And we just, uh, you know, some sang, some played instruments, one made a statement, one like made a, like a poetic thing, the other made a joke. And she started to talk in her talk and she started to talk about the song of this man that goes to the desert and he's looking for peyote and he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't find peyote and then he looks and looks and then the emptiness, you know, se torna su gianto. it becomes his cry. And as she starts to say that, she kind of starts to cry, like her, her voice trembles and her eyes come full of water. And there's that minute that, you know, everything froze and everybody just cried together with her. And, and then she said, you know, we don't want to be anything. We don't want to be special. We don't want to be uh, important. We don't want to be exotic. And we don't want our medicines to be incredible things to heal. I don't know if she said like this, but something along those lines. We just want to be, you know, we just want to be left alone. Um, and then everybody, you know, <laughs> it was very powerful. Everybody stood up and, and clapped and... Uh, Afterwards, I came on and I said, what motivated me? And I know I, 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 I told the story on how I, you know, the first time I went to Mexico and I was going to stay there for one month, I was studying social sciences. And then my, my father took me to the, to the airport and he said, are you coming back, Bia? And I thought, well, that's a weird question because of course I'm coming back. What do you mean? But the truth is that I didn't come back for a while. <laughs> I stayed one and a half year traveling. And in this trip, I, I, I had the incredible chance to um, try peyote in the desert and to eat uh, mushrooms in Huautla de Jimenez uh, and to try LSD too <laughs> for the first time. So it was like 20. And um, that really changed my mind for everything. It's just like, taught me who I was as a human being and uh, you know made me understand that I belong to planet earth made me understand that I'm a plant a part of the of the, of nature and a part of everything and just give me a deep spiritual understanding and relief as a human being and you know as as a living thing on on top of this other thing you know I remember I had such a strong experience with mushrooms. I looked to the sky and I saw the, the moon and I felt a great relief because it, it was something I could recognize. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm still here, everything good. So that trip really um, changed my life. Um, and I kind of felt inspired. And years later, I got, I got to know ayahuasca like five years later in Brazil, which was another incredible, beautiful blessing and revelation. And I just felt inspired by my own experiences. Um, so the base of everything for me is personal and it's my heart and, and it's a spiritual thing. And my motivation is that I think there's lots of ignorance and there's lots of prejudice and misunderstanding. And we need to do a bridge between these traditions and, and our world and they need to be more respected, more understood, and more appreciated. 
and and the people who who have been practicing these traditions and their territories and their land and their and their um, you know all their systems the the kinship the language uh, the cosmology it's a wonderful universe of of incredible uh, uh, you know knowledge and different ways of understanding the world. So there is not just one paradigm and one worldview and one main way to be on this planet. And indigenous people teach us alternative ways. And I think, in, you know, uh, we have a lot to learn with them. So I just feel this call um, to study these topics. It's yeah. like they make me curious and I want to study them. And then I want to write about it. And then I want to help advance, you know, the discourse on, on protection. And I just feel this rage when I see like, you know, a, a complete uh, alienated prohibitionist uh, judge or police officer or psychiatrist or, you know, uh, therapist or just a regular human being saying all kinds of absurd things about things they don't know. Yeah. And they, these have deep racist roots and deep, um, um, uh, you know, connection, uh, deep roots in, 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 in moral and religious paradigms that inform our mentalities and our societies. Uh, and, and I think we need to, to have more clarification. So my inspiration is, is personal, but it's also political. Yeah. So what, what, one question on that is that, you know, just even looking at, at something like the MAPS conference, where on the one hand, you can see how um, as official uh, neuroscience and clinical bodies and uh, above board researchers become interested in these topics, um, th there's, a t you know, a tendency towards the, a kind of familiar Western dominance. Uh, and then along with that come racist attitudes or they, they, they come, there comes pejorative attitudes towards, let's say, indigenous worldviews, you know, the idea that, hey, these things don't belong to these people. They're just part of Earth. And if we can spread them and use them for healing, what's the problem with that? We need to bring in the Western paradigm to make that happen, blah, blah, blah. And I can see very much how that is in tension with the kinds of values that you're talking about, both personal values, but also indigenous values. But the question I wanted to ask is actually about the aspect of uh, contemporary Western psychedelia or people who are interested in plant medicines, you know, beyond the term psychedelics, whether they call them entheogens or just look at it as ayahuasca and blah, blah, blah. But the people for whom the indigenous are already figures of wisdom and power. And I'm thinking about that, that story you just told about the woman's uh, sob-inducing song about how we don't want to be special. We don't want to be, like, exotic. And obviously when people, especially when Westerners, turn and try to engage indigenous people, indigenous sources of wisdom, indigenous cosmologies, the first thing they do is to exoticize, make, turn them into sources of power, uh, revere them, um, and misunderstand them. And we, you know, obviously many of the problems that is, are currently going on inside global ayahuasca shamanism have to do with the kind of construction of the Western ideas about who a shaman is and how they operate, off, which are often very dis disjunct from what you actually have on the ground. So how do you think looking forward and the fact that we need to build bridges between 
indigenous cosmologies, indigenous people, and the exploding world of psychedelic medicine, how do the people who are sort of already into indigenous wisdom, what are some errors there? What are some ways to improve that side of the equation? The people who are already like ready to have that worldview, what are they not aware of? What are they missing? What, what are some ways to improve uh, that relationship? Um, you make a lot of different difficult questions, man. You're going to have to pay me a, a dinner or something sometime. Deal. It's a deal. <laughs> um, I don't have answers. Like, it's not easy. I mean, I think we have to keep on doing what we're doing already, you know, and, and more. Uh, it's not like I have a kind of magical solution that's going to fix the problem. I, I think we, we need to, uh, like, I, I would say that one of the main messages of this conference and of this closing is that we take indigenous people for their plant medicines, but you can't take a part for the whole. This is not about just the plants and just about that aspect of the culture. So it's about uh, a much larger cosmology and it has to do with autonomy of the land and autonomy uh, of rights. So one way to start, you know, it's this decentralization, this de-obsession on the plants itself and, and thinking about these cultures more uh, in their integrity, in their whole. Uh, this is not easy because the fact is that the indigenous people that don't have this trendy substances, they are not so much in our radar. Uh -huh. And we are also not imitating all kinds of um, practices that they do, like, for example, uh, sitting on, on, on a pile of ants and having, you know, ants bite you or being sobbed with a special kind of leaf that has little spines. Like, we don't incorporate all kinds of indig indigenous rights. We incorporate certain rights that um, are more appealing to us. And I think we, we just have to study more and learn more and, and stop with this fetishization of indigenous people. I see a lot of that in the whole idea of ayahuasca diets and people repeat and repeat and repeat and reinforce those diets. But does anybody have a clue that those have to do with hunting taboos? They have to do with uh, how you, you take the bones out of the game and they have to do on... Uh, which which time of the year you can hunt or not, and you know the negotiations that you have to do with the shaman pig, and uh, whether you can hunt certain animals or not. So we just published a book called um, the continuing uh, the the world the expanding world ayahuasca diaspora. That's a continuation of our previous book, which was the world ayahuasca Di diaspora. So it's kind of like mission the mission number two. It's a continuation. And I have a chapter, a co-authorship, uh, talking about the diets and, uh, you know, this idea and uh, proposing that we, we stop to reflect a little bit uh, better on, you know, like we, we get certain aspects of the practice, but we don't get others. So I, I think regarding ayahuasca, for example, a lot of people have kind of noticed the topic of witchcraft. The great majority doesn't know anything about that. But the ones that are more initiated or more familiar with ayahuasca, they will acknowledge, uh, you know, witchcraft uh, exists in the world of, of ayahuasca. It's not all good. So let's say in a continuum, the more regular person is just totally idealizing ayahuasca, healing ayahuasca, flower ayahuasca, love ayahuasca, salvation, redemption. 
the Amazon will be healed, the humanity will be healed, we're going to be saved. This is the last thing we that is, you know, we needed to wake as a species. That's that's one one style. The other style is more already, you know, aware that there is dark and and light in the ayahuasca world, and that there is witchcraft, and that you know, healing is ambiguous with harming because sometimes protecting yourself can be healing others like if you're attacked by somebody you will attack back take that dart out of you and throw it back uh, there is that and then there is this idea you know you know but we are we are not into witchcraft and we're combating witchcraft but uh, witchcraft also has a role in traditional cultures like witchcraft is a is the means of you know uh, control of social control and it can play a role in in division of um, goods and in, in in more equality in uh, policing other people's behaviors so I think that what we have to do is a true humble process of trying to learn about different peoples and their worldviews in their own logic in their own uh, paradigm through their own lenses and be really open to new uh, ways of understanding nature and culture, relating to other species, to non-humans, to the ancestral, to the invisible world, to other, uh, you know, deep ontological and epistemological uh, notions. But then again, I am an anthropologist. Maybe, you know, I can't ask that from everybody, but that's what inspires me. So in one word, nothing more boring than, you know, a bunch of, um, Westerners just talking about themselves and their ayahuasca experience. A million documentaries about ayahuasca every day, a trillion blogs, a trillion news. But what is the homework of trying to understand what it is for indigenous people? How many ayahuasca documentaries have really tried to talk to any indigenous person or anthropologist or researcher or indigenous activist or any kind of you know person with anything to say beyond my own healing, my own trauma, my own childhood, my parents, my this, my that. So I think we need to, you know, it's the process of learning about this should be a process of us being more humble about our own values and our own worldviews. And unfortunately, I don't think ayahuasca necessarily helps in that, but no. it, it could, it could. No, I I hear you very much. Exact, uh, like uh, I'm I'm all, I'm all ears, you know. And that's one of the, you know, I was joking before we started recording about how I, I kind of liked it better before when it was a much smaller world, um, and where a lot of the intellectuals who were involved or people who were thinker, thinker, reader, study researcher types, a lot of them weren't even attached to universities. So it's it was a very different world, you know, 30 years ago. 25 years ago even. Um, and one of the problems that I think happens with the rise of psychedelic science is that the, the tension between science and the humanities, which is, you know, which is a larger issue even between hard science and social sciences, um, which is already a big part of things, it gets exacerbated. So what it does is it, 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 it uh, takes away the encouragement for people to do their homework. To, to read, to talk to anthropologists, to talk to indigenous people, to open up to the issues that are involved with moving between different paradigms, with different ontologies. And whether we use fancy terms or whether it's a more visceral 
understanding. Those processes clearly do happen. Lots of people go through them and they wind up on the far end with much subtler views. Personally, I've known you know, a lot of kind of, you know, neo-hippie, neo-tribal hippie ayahuasca people, you know, who I knew when they were in their early 20s and they were kind of naive and then checking in with them 10 years later, some of them have just learned an extraordinary amount and done an incredible amount of work of actually learning about these different dimensions, about creating sophisticated bridges with indigenous perspectives um, and historical perspectives. But the emphasis on psychedelic science now and on this sort of, you know, almost vampiric paradigm of healing means that it's easier for people not to do that work because most of the scientists don't do that work because they're scientists and they often have very simplistic ontologies and they're not very interested beyond a kind of superficial, you know, gesture towards uh, indigenous healers. They're interested in medicines. They're interested in isolating uh, you know, substances from whole cultural plant complexes. They're interested in control and they're interested in the individual who is healed if they're clinicians. It's always about the individual who is healed. And it's not about the collective, the social, the, the cultural dom- domain. It's, it's just not part of the, the engine of science. So it's a, it's a real interesting uh, problem how to kind of lure people who are sincere seekers, but to have, help them avoid the traps of healing narcissism and to embrace the ambiguities that are involved with trying to understand other people, trying to understand history, trying to understand you know, cultural dynamics, anthropology. Those are hard things to do. There's no answer. There's, it, you never get resolved. It, 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 it's, it's always a kind of get, you know, ambiguous, hopeful, d- frustrating kind of process. Uh, it's not a red. It's not a pill, a red pill or a blue pill, um, and so that seems to be part of part of the work now is to is to continue to open up those questions and to resist the growing tendency to scientize these things, bureaucrat bureaucratize them, come up with simple medicine oriented paradigms to describe them, uh, and those things have value. But left to their own devices, I think they, they, make th- they have a potential to make things even worse. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really hard. Um, you know, I think I hear what you say about how it was back in the day. Um, I think we have to, you know, be pragmatic about this. And um, I'm, I think you're older than I, but, you know, avoid this nostalgia. I am a, basically a pragmatist. Like, what do I do is the following. I see that something is going to happen. And like a conference that I think, you know, they're kind of alienated to what they're doing, in fact. And then there's that existential issue. Should I participate or not? Should I help or not? Um, I think, yes, I'm going to help because it's better with me than without me modestly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, also talking to the media, like, should I talk to this guy or not? Because, you know, he's, uh, he, maybe he's changing my words, he's editing my words, he's, you know, giving me a whole different interpretation. But the bad guys out there, they don't have this kind of existential problems. The psychiatrist that is going to sit and say, oh, you ask, guys, a toxic potion that can give you heartbeat and tie and kill you, and this is a Schedule One substance. Like, 
the guy obviously never could tell what is even ayahuasca if you left him in a garden and tell him a dead fight have you drink have you can you see what it is but he's feeling super coffee in saying all that kind of thing that crosses his mind that he studied in you know hallucinogens one in 1972 in his uh, course somewhere so this sort of people you know they i think we have to always remember uh, that the dilemmas that we have inside the psychedelic community is like where where you know where like family family discussions we are discussing about ourselves and we're fighting about ourselves because the real enemies and the real people that we have to remember are the major you know corporations and transnational uh, initiatives of like lumber and and agricultural developments oil development uh, uh, invasion of uh, mining initiatives in the desert attacks to the amazon and uh, projects that severely threaten and endanger indigenous people on the one side and on the other side the bureaucrats of the drug war uh, so that's what you know that what's get my fuel when i'm feeling a little bit down about my battles uh, i tried to watch some of more mainstream you know line of thinking and also did that by attending an anti-gay uh, protest in guadalajara where i uh, lived for many years, so it was anti-gay march. Fifty thousand, fifty thousand people. That they had all kinds of uh, slogans. For example, saying things like "biología, no ideología; biology, not ideology." Like that was their one of the slogans they had. <laughs> so I went there to educate myself on the importance for us to keep on, you know. Our, our activism for human rights and for better understanding. And yes, as the, the field grows and grows, it becomes more and more complex and it becomes harder and harder to know if we're really one community anyway and what are all the vested interests in this kind of conference and in this kind of field. Uh, and it's the same situation of our conference. You need to go, you, you go to a conference and you need freaking subtitles to what's going on because it's like, you don't even know how to read politically all the forces and the vectors uh, that are disputing. So that's, it, we, we live in very challenging yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have about 10 minutes left and I wanted to get to one other, one other topic we'd mentioned earlier. Uh, another paper that you that you have uh, uh, that that you have in the plant medicines book has to do with the the legal status of, of ayahuasca circles in the U.S. Now, there's a lot of sort of because we have some space under the exception clause for to allow for uh, you know indigenous use. So there's Native American church has gotten a pass for decades, and now people are like going, hey, can can we use the UDV decision to make more space for uh, you know, legal um, ayahuasca circles if they attach themselves in certain ways. Um, and I'm curious just to hear a little bit about what's happening in that zone since it's something you've, you've researched. What, what are the, what's, has, have there been any successes? Have there been some, some you know, failures? What, what, what are people trying to do in order to make more of the underground ayahuasca circles that are already happening in the U.S. Uh, le legitimate and above board? So I think this is the hottest topic of ayahuasca in the U.S. right now because everybody's exhausted of being underground and everybody's upset with the drug war. 
and people are trying to get organized and legal. But the fact is that it's illegal. It's just legal for for the UDV and for some chapters of the Santo Daimi. Both are Brazilian ayahuasca religions that have a strong uh, Christian background, but also Afro and um, esoterical and you know indigenous. But mainly our religious organizations. Everybody out of that is 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 uh, is on a complicated situation. So uh, there is there is a um, people are trying to to rely on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, that you know would would maybe allow them to have their existence. And then what is required in this regard is that you would have to prove th three things. One is that you're religious in nature. And two is that you're based in a sincere belief. And three is that the prohibition of consuming your sacrament is uh, burdened by the government. The, the, the fact that you, are, you can't use your sacrament uh, because of legal reasons would be a, a burden to your religion. Uh, and therefore, your religion can't exist. So it's a pretty complicated uh, situation. The idea of how you define religion is pretty complicated because there is not a definition of religion per se. Uh, what exists are court cases that have indicated you know, religious traits that people could try to uh, prove they have. And, and this, of course, follows more mainstream uh, uh, definitions of religion. So things like, do you have a founder, a prophet, a teacher? Uh, do you have writings? Do you have gathering places? Do you have keepers of knowledge? Do you have ceremonies or rituals? Do you have a structure or organization? Do you have certain holidays? Uh, do you have certain clothing? Do, do you have means of propagation? Uh, the other thing is that you have to prove, like let's say you sit down and you write all of those, but you, you have to prove that you're, you're uh, religion, your religious beliefs are sincere and not ad hoc, that you just didn't hire Bielabacho or Eric Daves to write them for you, but that you actually believe in them and that you practice them. And then the other thing is whether your sacrament is fundamental for your religion, because if you say, you know, I could, I use several sacraments, so the government will say, well, don't use this and this and that then, because these are forbidden. Or if you say, I don't need my sacrament to practice my religion because I have my prayers, so don't use a sacrament then, just keep to your prayers. So the DEA has put a mechanism that you could file an, an exemption to prove that you, you have a religious use of a substance. And it's a kind of sweet little cool document. I have it on my website, bialabati.net, under the category legal texts. I have a whole link there for this discussion. Uh, and I find it just very fascinating, you know, the, the debates on, on how do you define all of that. And two ayahuasca groups have filed for an exemption. One is SoQuest and the other one is Ayahuasca Healing. Uh, healings. Both of them got a lot of visibility and a lot of controversy. Uh, one is led by Chris Young and the other one is led by Trinity. That, that the first, this Trinity one got into a lot of trouble because he started going around claiming he was legal and he was severely attacked. The fact is that both groups filed the exemption and we don't know what's going to happen. And maybe the DA is going to, you know, 
keep on asking them things for years and years. Maybe they give a positive answer. Maybe they give a negative answer. Some people are completely underground and feel that it's a huge threat to even say the word ayahuasca in public. Others go visible and just give you know interviews in CNN or uh, announce in Facebook. So there's uh, you know different people with different understandings about uh, what are their legal rights because a lot of people feel that after the UDV case they are entitled and they have rights and they, they feel that their practices are legitimate and that you know their religion is uh, ought to be protected. But there's uh, different ways of seeing. This yeah. Trauma. Well, and then and then this is all complicated by the the recent news you you told me just before uh, we spoke about uh, a, an apparent uh, death associated with uh, a ceremony at at Soul Quest in, in Orange County. Um, what uh, what can you say about what what uh, what happened and and how you see you know the negative effects this might have? Again, I don't know. Um... Again, I can speculate, um, you know, or all I've seen is in the news. So apparently somebody went drinking ayahuasca in Soul Quest and died. Uh, that makes me extremely sad. And I just want to, you know, send my, my solidarity and my, play, my prayers and my, you know, positive warm wishes for the family and uh, say how sorry I am for this news. Mm. I think that, you know, when things like this happen, there is just one answer. The answer is called investigation. And we have to find out what happened because we can't jump to conclusions. And, uh, and for this Facebook and things like that are just horrible because people sit behind their computers and start making all kinds of comments uh, that is very cruel because... A lot of people were critical of Chris Young because he did this application and he didn't kind of consult with experts and didn't have a lot of agreement that he should do the application. He also did, you know, uh, he did have several sacraments, which is highly not recommendable uh, for you to, to have if you're going to apply for the DEA. Uh, he also kept on doing his activities despite uh, receiving a cease and desist letter from the DEA. And he had a very proactive, um, has a very proactive approach and has gone to the media, works with a lot of veterans. There's a lot of reports that he, he does really great work. Uh, and there's a lot of veterans that speak highly of him and veterans are taken in high regard in the USA, as you know. Uh, I say that because I am a foreigner, so this is news for me. Uh, uh, but I, I see that veterans here are kind of the top of the kind of, you know, almost a taboo. Like if it's for the vets, it's okay. Um, so, uh, you know, I think maybe that gave him a sense of empowerment or maybe he just felt that he has the right to do all those things. But the fact is that he's on the total, uh, you know, as visible as it gets, not only because he was on the media, but because he filed an exemption to the DEA. And then people start saying, oh, you see, he's really bad practitioner. There has been a death, but we don't know. Maybe the guy, you know, fell from the stairs inside the house. And uh, like, you can't jump to any conclusions ever because you can also die just during sex or taking a shower or doing your sleep. 
and we don't know what happened, so we can't jump into conclusions. This is no evidence that uh, you know he was doing anything wrong or that anything was related to ayahuasca. And then there is also uh, the presence of Cambo. Please, everybody, not Cambo, Cambo, like the second emphasis on the second syllable. Cambo is a poison of the frog. Uh, and, um, you know, people also, there's this, there's this tendency to find guilt and scapegoat. Oh, it's not ayahuasca, for sure it's Cambo. Like, excuse me, who says it's Cambo either? Like, you know, indigenous people have been using Cambo for ages. And it's pretty safe. Maybe the guy had a series of, uh, you know, previous conditions. Maybe he had taken other substances. Maybe it was an accident, or maybe it was a toxic uh, poison in, uh, intoxication. And even if it was a death related to ayahuasca or cambo, this doesn't mean that it should be prohibited. Again, the discussion is much more complex and much more you know, sophisticated because when we see somebody dying because of an alcohol uh, problem, are we all going to stop, you know, we are going to all take alcohol out of the, the, the uh, you know, of the world? Like, it's not, it's not like that. Prohibition has bad effects and I would... I would go further saying the fact that it's prohibited creates much more complicated scenarios for regulation, screening, uh, uh, proper information, harm reduction. If you are, for example, a clinical psychologist in the USA and you want to talk to somebody, screen somebody to drink ayahuasca, maybe you can have a problem, a, a criminal liability if this person has a is a problem drinking ayahuasca afterwards or yeah. with the board of clinical yeah. psychologists. So, well, uh, you know, Bia, we're going to have to uh, let it go there on these, uh, the ongoing complexities. And thank you so much for, for guiding us through them uh, for a bit for this, this one hour. So I really appreciate you being on expanding mind. Yeah. Thank you too. <laughs> okay. So Bia Labachi, you can uh, find out more on bialabache.net and also look at shakruna.net uh, until next week. Keep your minds open.